0: This episode is brought to you by Book Riot's own Recommended, a podcast where we talk to interesting people about the books they love. Each 20 minute episode features two interviews with guests from the book world, each discussing an all time favorite book. Whether it's a best selling author, an editor from behind the scenes, or an industry insider, they've all got a book to recommend. Season one is available in full, and season two is airing right now. Past guests include National Book Foundation executive editor Lisa Lucas, Salam Reads editor Zareen Jeffrey, and authors including Attica Locke, Lee Bardugo, Jasmine Ward, Alexander Chi, James McBride, Joe Hill, Tessa Dare, and many more. As one listener said, Hearing the authors give such passionate book recommendations makes me want to read them all. The only competition is the recommended books. Find out what books have shaped the lives and careers of some of your favorite authors. You can subscribe to Recommended on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 270. We're recording on Thursday, July 19th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Sharifa Williams while Jeff is out this week, and we are coming to you from BookRiot.com. Sharifa, welcome. Thank you so much. I think- it's been Okay. A while since we had you here.
1: Yeah, it has. And last time I was on the show, I think I compared it to like an old it Somehow it turned to comparing it to an old creaky ship, but I don't I don't think I actually put the word creaky in there. I think that was Jeff. <laughs>
0: That's a bold move to like you know call a thing old and creaky your first time. On.
1: This is like the austere ship of the Book Riot podcast. So I have
0: referred to it as our flagship property.
1: Yes, that is that is a much better way to say it without being like weirdly yeah. insulting. I,
0: know, but old, I mean, old and creaky is frankly also not that <laughs> wrong sometimes. Um, and for those of you who have not heard Sharifa before. She is one of our associate editors, and she co-hosts the SFF Yeah! podcast about sci-fi fantasy with Jen.
1: I do, and it's so exciting to be here, and hopefully... I was just telling Rebecca about how I didn't get my coffee this morning, so I'm hoping I'm not going to be really slow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because usually... Jeff is like super caffeinated. We record the show at two o'clock in the afternoon, my time. And I'm like hitting the afternoon slump when this happens. And Jeff is like fully caffeinated. And I'll call him before the show. And he's like, how you doing? (laughs) And it's very like, oh, here we go. All right.
1: Oh, wow. I don't know. I have actually been in the room in the office with him while he was recording uh, some of your episodes. And I'm always like, where does it come from? Where does the energy come from? Because even I'm like, I can't.
0: (laughs) I'm glad that no one gets to watch me podcast because there's just so much gesticulating. Like, I talk with my hands in real life. And so I talk with my hands on the podcast. Recording annotated is the weirdest, where it's like, it's scripted, and I'm explaining something, and so there's all this, like, <laughs> explainy gesturing that I'm doing for the benefit of, I guess, feeling like I'm explaining something.
1: Let us never do a live podcast recording oh. on it. of <laughs> <laughs> I am yeah, also, I d- like, completely mad when I'm recording, so...
0: The like doing the live ones at Book Riot Live was one thing. Like I think being in front of an audience you can look at and talk to had it definitely felt different. But then the idea of like somebody just you know tapping into my laptop's camera and being able to watch me while I sit here like gesticulating is horrifying. Um, so I'm glad that you're here Thank and that you. we're kicking it off on a weird note. We'll just. <laughs> We'll just roll through that. But before we get into anything, I want to talk about our first sponsor this week. Support for today's show comes from Google Play. If you did not know already, now you know for sure that you can download and listen to audiobooks on Google Play. That's right. With hands-free listening you using Google Assistant or Chromecast, you can enjoy thousands of titles a la carte. There's no subscription necessary. And there's even multi-device integration across the Google ecosystem. So if you've got an Android phone that you listen to audiobooks on, but you also have a Google Home, you can bounce back and forth between listening, you know, I don't know, in the car with your phone or listening uh, at home using Google Home. Really cool to be able to integrate throughout the ecosystem. Google Play sent me and Jeff some download codes so that we could try the Google Play audiobooks, and it worked seamlessly. They have a great selection. I usually like to listen to memoirs, like celebrity memoirs, or just a really interesting personal story. Nonfiction in general is my audiobook jam. I have a really hard time focusing on like world building or fiction. On an audiobook while I'm also driving or doing the dishes or whatever. So I listen to nonfiction. I try to listen whenever I can. And I am having a bout of sadness and nostalgia for Anthony Bourdain. So I downloaded Kitchen Confidential, um, which I read in print years ago um, and really have fond memories of. And when I feel strong enough, I'm going to listen to him read uh, Kitchen Confidential. Are you an audiobook person, Sharifa? I don't know if we've ever talked about this.
1: I am very audiobook Friendly, and by the way, I love that book, so very good <sighs> choice. Um, but yeah, I listen to audiobooks like just about every day, it's basically how I get through my reading because I'm a slow physical reader, like mm. any physical copies I'm really slow about. So, audiobooks are definitely my thing. <laughs>
0: So you must have the superpower that I'm lacking then because you read so much sci-fi fantasy. You must be able to just like build that world in your head when you're listening.
1: Yeah. And I was actually just talking to somebody about on the last SFF Yeah episode, I was talking about how I seem to exclusively listen to dystopian fiction on audiobook. So I don't know what that's about, but for some reason it just works for me that way. And I just like being told a story, I guess.
0: Well, whatever your audiobook flavor, Google Play has got you covered. And for a limited time, you can get $10 off your first one by visiting g.co slash play slash book That's g.co slash play slash book Find your story with audiobooks on Google Play. All right. Let's kick it off with something that I know makes us both happy. Okay. The, rec- the book recommender in chief.
1: Yes. Barack Obama. <laughs> I cling to any news of Barack Obama. Oh, like Same. It's my life vest. Um. So Barack Obama just posted a summer reading list, so we're all very seasonal. And he's traveling to Africa for the first time since he left office, he says in this Facebook post. Um, and so in honor of that, in honor of him visiting South Africa and then visiting Kenya afterwards, which is the Obama ancestral home. Um, He decided to put together a list of some really great works by African writers, and it's a very solid list. Like, I was looking at this list, and I was like, yes, good, I mean, good job, Obama, all around, but good job, Obama, putting this list together. I will say there were a couple, like, I wanted some surprise, lulzy, not even lulzy, Mm -hmm. but just good... uh, Picks by African writers. But so here's the actual list that he put together. And it's a book, a list of six books. So there's Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe. There's A Grain of Wheat by Gugi Wathiango. Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. Americana by Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. Uh, the Return by Hisham Matar. The World as it is by Ben Rhodes. Um, it's just... It's, I I have actually, I was kind of kicking myself because a lot of these books I have not read. Of course, I've read Americana. It's like, it stands as one of my favorite books of all time. And I actually own Things Fall Apart, but I haven't read it yet. Oh, you didn't have to read it in school? No, for some reason it never, like I never even heard of the book until like, I don't know, six or seven years ago.
0: I don't know what happened there. I think we all have those, but like which books make their way through the cracks of our reading educations and how is so interesting.
1: I know. I feel like there were actually a lot of books. I always come across books where I'm like, how did I miss this? Did I just have some like slacker teachers or something?
0: But (laughs) there's just too many classics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there are. I'm trying to rectify that slowly over time. But now there's this Obama list, and I'm basically just going to make it into. My TBR for the year, um, those books I haven't read. And I sort of secretly wanted to see something like Children of Blood and Bone by Tony oh, like
0: Something super weird.
1: Yeah, like My Sister the <laughs> Serial Killer, which isn't out oh,
0: yet. But. Or like um, I Loved the Woman Next Door by Omatoso, which Oh, Yeah. My pitch for that is like the Golden Girls, but woke in South Africa.
1: Okay, I have to read that book.
0: <laughs> it's really, it's it's really fun. It's about these two women, one black, one white, in a really fancy neighborhood in Johannesburg, and they have this. They're both like seventy or eighty. They're up there in years, so it's that rare book in in or rare like story in general that takes older women seriously, yeah. and they hate each other. They start off as rivals but it becomes like a frenemy situation that sounds epic (laughs) it's really fun and I didn't think it got nearly as much love as it deserved when it came out a year or two ago
1: yeah I think I've only I've only heard it mentioned like within the book riot group in like the back channels but I never really saw it around so that's probably why it slipped off my radar but now I I sort of have to I'm just going to keep appending things to the bottom of this list uh, from Obama
0: the Obama syllabus yes
1: obama 101 were. literature <laughs> bo- from obama's recommended reading list one that's really
0: long imagine taking a lit course that he teaches
1: that would be first of all you wouldn't even be able to get into the classroom i remember what <laughs> oh well, let's is not one. get into the details <laughs> I mean, no. okay fantasy fantasy then <laughs> in that our would fan be it's like the tardis
0: in there it just is big enough to hold everyone.
1: That would be, that would be so, I would go back to college for a day for that. Nothing else could take me back there, but
0: that would. (laughs) But that would do it. I'm really interested in this too. I've read Things Fall Apart. I've read Americana and I've, I'm familiar with Nelson Mandela's story. Mm -hmm. I've never read Long Walk to Freedom. But the next one that I think I'm going to pick up is The World As It Is by Ben Rhodes. This is the one that like I've been reading my way through all of the Obama staffer memoirs that have been coming out. And somehow The World As It Is slipped my radar. Um, And every time I talk about Obama staffer memoirs on all the books, I get a bunch of messages that are like, but do you know about the Ben Rhodes book? Um, So the answer is that I do know about it and I'm going to read it next. But I'm definitely taking a push um, from Barack Obama. the president that Ben Rhodes worked under saying that his memoir is one of the smartest reflections that he's seen about how they approached foreign policy.
1: That's a pretty solid recommendation, then. uh, I have also been reading some of the memoirs out of the Obama White House, but most of them have been. I think I've been purposefully going after the ones that sound kind of funny and humorous, mm. like just because I'm like, the I dishy need ones. something. I need something like lighthearted about politics. But this sounds Did
0: you- good. Did you get to um, From the Corner of the Oval that no, I think just came out?
1: No, but yes, that is definitely on my list. As soon as I saw that one, because what, what they literally said it was like a sort of juicy, it sounded like, you It know, is.
0: It's the juiciest one. Yes.
1: So that is definitely, I think I might, I'm sorry, Ben Rose, but I think I might pick that one up first. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's all right. Ben Rose is going to get a little love from me, so it's okay. That's true. What a good list! Um, before we move on, last week Jeff and I talked about how Tor is doing a new thing where they are delaying making access to eBooks for library lending available until four months after the books have come out, um, because they, based on data that they have that they did not reveal in the press release, but that they said they have, they have determined that eBook li- library eBook lending is cannibalizing sales of eBooks um, early in a book's life. So we were sort of, Jeff and I were noodling over like, this makes business sense, but it maybe is not the greatest PR decision because readers are used to having access to these things. And um, on the insider Slack, we got some really interesting feedback. Emily Ringborg, who is a librarian in Sweden, was like, oh, this is just how it is in Sweden. Like, you have to wait a couple of months if you're going to borrow an ebook from the library. If you want it first thing, you have to buy it. Like, that's just the way they do things. And someone else pointed out that um, it happens in other forms of media for libraries regularly that like Warner Brothers doesn't send movies to public libraries at the same time that those DVDs become rentable through Netflix or that the movies become available on on demand. So there's precedent for this. I think it's just hard because they had started in a place of making them available at the first, you know, at the same time. And now they're walking it back. Yeah.
1: I like Thank tour you. books, but, um, I- I just feel like a lot of people don't know those details and will react to this badly. But that's interesting. I didn't know that either.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's definitely inside baseball to understand why the decision got made. If you're just a normal reader going to your library wondering why you can see this book on, like, an Amazon listing, but you can't get it from the library, I think that would be really frustrating. Yeah, yeah some consumer education to be done there. Uh, But thank you to all of you who let us know your thoughts about that. And if you emailed thoughts about it, Jeff will have those. He checks the podcast email. Um, So we may hear more about that next week when he's back. Um, Continuing in follow-up, we've been talking about the new academy, which is the sort of alternate organization that has popped up, like grassroots response to all the issues that have been going on with the Nobel Prize in literature and how it's not being awarded this year. The New Academy is a group of artists and writers and people who care about literature in Sweden. And they are doing essentially like a crowdsourced voting process to award the alternative... Nobel, the not a Nobel is what I'm calling it. I'm um, so <laughs> That's <a good> name. <laughs> voting for it is open now. Um, let's see. I'm not sure. You can only vote once, and uh, let's see. It closes these August 14th. These are authors that were nominated by Swedish librarians, and at least two nominations were required to get a person's name onto the voting round. Um, so the voting, you know, actually they're, they've really thought this through in order to make sure that the voting works, the list order is randomized. So um, the site that I'm looking at lists Sarah Stridsberg first, then Thomas Pynchon, uh, and then Cormac McCarthy. But if you go to the link in the show notes, you will very likely see them appear in a different order. And that's yeah. so that people aren't biased to just vote for the first couple that they see. Um, I think that is really smart. Um, there's a search function built in if you're looking for, you know, a particular author. Um, but let's see. So there's Sarah Stridsberg, um, from Sweden, Thomas Pension from the U.S. Jeanette Winterson is on here, Cormac McCarthy, uh, Chimamande Ngozi Adichie, Joyce Carol Oates, Haruki Murakami, Donna Tartt. And those are just some of the ones that show up on the first page for me. And there are four pages, Of them, So quite a selection. It'll be really interesting to see. So you can vote until August 14th, and then I guess whoever wins, wins. They're making this a very democratic process.
1: They are. It's super interesting because I – I mean, this story has been going on for such a long time now, it feels like, and I don't think I would have ever guessed that this would be like any part of the outcome, but it's very (laughs) – very interesting and one of the stipulations they have here for the short list once everybody votes on the long list is that it has to be like regardless of the votes it has to be two men and two women so it Ah, has to be so it's like i'm really curious about who's going to end up in this short list and there's such a there's an interesting range of authors, and it's been, I mean, the Nobel Prize in Literature has been historically awarded to a lot of white men, mm-hmm. so I'm kind of invested in seeing something different come out of this one, and I've already cast my vote, by the way, so. Ooh. I know. <laughs> I was like, yeah, can I even and- tell them who I voted for? Is that like a, a secret thing? But I voted for Okora for for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good use of your vote. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think it's so interesting too. This feels like a very 2018 response Mm -hmm. to a thing. Like, you know what? The Nobel for Lit got all screwed up because of secrecy and scandal and let's just drag our whole process out in the light of day and make it very democratic. Um, It feels very Sweden to say that they're going for gender parity among the shortlist. So I guess it'll probably just be the top two women and the top two men that are nominated in order to make that happen. Um, Every time the Nobel comes around there's speculation about will it be Haruki Murakami? Um, I think it would be cool to see that recognition happen. I will say the people of Sweden perhaps are not as familiar with Joyce Carol Oates's really problematic mm. Twitter account as they should be. I would prefer to not see that happen.
1: Yeah, when I saw her name on there, I was like, oh. oh. You can vote for
0: Elena Ferrante, which is interesting.
1: Oh yeah, like, you can. Elena Ferrante's on there. I thought it was interesting. I don't know why I thought it was interesting that Neil Gaiman was on there, but I, I for whatever reason didn't expect it. And your one of your favorites, Marilyn mm-hmm. Robinson, is on yep. here.
0: Marilyn um, is on here. Paul yeah. Oster, Don DeLillo, Jamaica Kincaid. Um, oh, the poet Anne Carson. She's wonderful. That would be interesting. I
1: wonder how many people are gonna vote for J.K. Rowling. <laughs>
0: Oh, I was just looking at that. I think it was before your time, but like years ago, Jeff wrote an editorial about how J.K. Rowling should win the Nobel. Oh my goodness, (laughs) he might see it come true. (laughs) Yeah, and it was like- the people were like, this is clickbait. But he was sort of laying out like, these are the criteria for winning the Nobel. And you can't really argue that anyone has influenced literary culture more than J.K. Rowling. Um,
1: We're going to have to dig up that article and repost
0: it just so he can have his, I told you so. It was really early in Book Riot, I guess it was probably like 2012. And it was one of those like, well, I guess I'm just going to be blocking terrible comments on Facebook for the next four hours. Oh, when we it. <laughs> the I mean, I know you moderate our social media now, you know, you I know do. exactly what would happen if we ran that today. Oh
1: my, <laughs> I'm getting, I'm breaking out into hives just thinking about it.
0: <laughs> we would have to make sure that you had had your coffee that day.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Anything more about the new Academy? Any other thoughts?
1: I'm just looking forward to seeing what comes out of it, who gets on the shortlist and who actually wins and whether, like, how the world is going to respond to it because there's already been some backlash. One of our contributors, Erica, who's been following Mm -hmm. this story really closely, was writing about some of the backlash that's already happening from Swedish media and others. And it's that sort of ivory tower business. So Mm. um, I'm really curious to see it. Like I would – it would be really sad to see something like this that is sort of symbolic of like it's time to move past these – you know, old traditions that really just reward a lot of old white men and think about things a little differently. It would be sad to see it kind of besmirched by a lot of angry people who don't understand the point of trying something new.
0: Yeah. I hope that just a zillion people vote in it and I hope we get to know how many people voted so that they can be like, look, we did this new thing and here is how interested people were. We got a zillion votes.
1: That would be really I, – I really hope that they release the numbers. I sort of suspect they won't,
0: but – I know. Maybe. Maybe. A girl can dream. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And if you want to vote, we'll have a link in the show notes. So you can go check out the full list of nominees and cast your votes. Do it. All right. Let me tell you about our next sponsor. The Great Courses Plus is back. Summer is the perfect time to dive deeply into an interesting topic and learn something new, especially if, like me, you live in the South and leaving your house is miserable. (laughs) Sitting in the air conditioning and learning things (laughs) sounds excellent. And The Great Courses Plus is a really great way to do just that. So here's how it works. With The Great Courses Plus, you get to discover new interests, pick up new hobbies, and you get fascinating insight from leading professors and experts. You get unlimited access to thousands of lectures in virtually any category like literature, human behavior, history, science, art, music, so many more. You can watch or listen anytime, anywhere using the Great Courses Plus app. Today, we're recommending their course, The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. It explores both the history of the genre and its techniques, looking at masters like Agatha Christie, Edgar Allan Poe, and introducing some great lesser-known authors. So if you're super into mystery and suspense and you want to get like that good 50,000-foot view of how the genre has developed, you know, Agatha Christie is widely known to have been thought of at least as the best plotter in the history of mystery, which is a really fun phrase to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You can sort of find out the mechanics of that. And if you're a writer, I think this would also be super interesting to get a little bit more of an academic and big picture perspective on the genre and the techniques that go into writing the genre. We know that there are a ton of mystery and suspense fans out there in Book Riot land. So if you're cruising around the Great Courses Plus and you're looking for a course to take, you could take The Secrets of Great Mystery and Suspense Fiction. I will be over here yearning for Barack Obama's literature course to become (laughs) available. Um, We know that you're going to love The Great Courses Plus, so for a limited time only, our listeners will get a special offer of a full month of unlimited access to the entire library for free. You could learn so many things. To start your free month, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot for a full month of unlimited access for free. That's a good deal. If you were going to nerd out learning a thing this summer, what would it be?
1: Well, see, I am desperate to learn another language. So mine is so – well, it's not that. Non literary, are are like I I remember like somebody wrote something about reading children's books in another language. So, oh,
0: that's so cool!
1: I mean, if there was a children's book learning course, like I would totally take that.
0: All children's books in Spanish or something.
1: I am actually pretty good at Spanish. <laughs> I will say, so, like. I'm pretty good at Spanglish. I grew up in Los Angeles, so mm. I know how to say things about food, which is very important, but... That is
0: important. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: Should we talk about UK publishing? I guess so. I know. I was going to say, speaking of ivory towers, <laughs> yeah, I was like, my speaking one Speaking of
0: results we're not excited about, but are predictable. Yeah.
1: I was very unsurprised by this news. So, um... It came out of a survey, a research project, that only 1% of children's books – this is from the UK – only Mm -hmm. 1% of children's books have BAME main characters, and BAME Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic is what BAME stands for. Um, And I was not surprised. This was a research project that was funded by Arts Council England. It was the first of its kind, and they asked UK publishers to submit books featuring BAME characters in last year in 2017. So okay. they got their results. There were 9,115 children's books published last year and only 391, which is 4% of those featured BAME characters at all. And then only 1% of them had a BAME main character. Um <gasps> And I couldn't find in this, um, I might have missed it somehow, but I looked for it, and I couldn't even find, like, how many of this 1% was written by own voice, like, own voices. Oh. Like, I I don't know. And I suspect it's an even smaller fraction of that number. Yes.
0: Let's assume it's just abysmal.
1: Yes, because this is children's book publishing. So um, there are a lot of bad numbers, not just in the UK, but in the US and... Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So this is why there was no surprise and then they actually went out and looked at the numbers of actual school children of minority ethnic origins in England and there are 32.1%. So it's a huge discrepancy between you know how many school children who are minority ethnic um, from minority ethnic backgrounds are actually in England compared to like the reading materials they're getting that reflect them and their lives. Yeah.
0: That's not good. It's This is not good. Yeah, it's really terrible. We get the numbers once a year from the acronym I think is the CCBC and I can never remember exactly what it stands for but it's like the Children's Council for Book something. Uh, And they do this same kind of count here in the U.S. about um, books, children's books by and about people of color. And it's usually around three or four percent show up qualifying as being by or about a person of color. Um, I don't know if they get as specific as has a main character um, that's a person of color or not for that, but I'm pretty sure that here in the US it's at least incoming of incoming kindergartners more than 50% are people of color now so that that discrepancy if you're if we're in like the 40 to 50% range of school children being people of color the discrepancy in the US is even worse. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it, like you hear a lot of discussions about this and like even with the there's, like the society of children's book writers and illustrators this is a thing that comes up a lot and um, another thing that is a point that's made in this research project is that 10% of these books, this very small chunk of books, contain social justice issues such as war and conflict.
0: 10% of the 4%? Yes.
1: So it Ugh. was, the, the problem is that, and this is a problem that I see in publishing wide, like not just in children's books, mm-hmm. is that when you have a character that's you know, from a marginalized background, it's always, there is the push to, to promote and publish these books that are mostly about the struggle of Mm -hmm. a person from that background, which is, as is mentioned also in this article, it is a necessary conversation to have, and it's definitely a worthwhile, um, it's, these are worthwhile works, but then to only have the suffering reflected back at you know, especially children from these minority groups to have only the struggles reflected back Mm -hmm. at them and to see their lives and their backgrounds and their diversity as something that has been um, the source of problematic things over history. Like that's also, there needs to be some balance there. So it's frustrating.
0: (laughs) It is frustrating. As you're saying, it just perpetuates the notion that there's like one monolithic story for say black people and that it's this story of struggle and for kids to come up only seeing that one story told if they're lucky enough like you know to have what 10% of a 4% chance of getting a story related to social justice in some way there's just so much more variety to all of our lives and all of those shades of experience are important and should be like kids of color need whimsical books just as much as little blonde white girls do. Um, and that's the, like, that is the bottom line. And there's just no justifiable reason. Like it's bad business, first of all, to not make books that appeal to and reflect back the experiences of your full market that's available to you. Um, It's the right thing to do to have more diversity and inclusivity in your publishing or as people are, I've heard recently, diversity is a fact, inclusivity is the choice. Um, But it makes business sense to do it too. And I'm just tired of not seeing publishing figure that part out. Like, even if they can't get to do the right thing, do the thing that will make you more money.
1: Yeah I think it is a lot of like being stuck in the past and not seeing like this is such a changing world and in a few years who we see in the world and the leaders of the world are going to look very different than Mm -hmm. you know what we've seen you know even like a few years back so I don't think that they're looking at they're just like sort of sticking with the one thing they think has been working all along and they're not really considering what they're contributing to the world and to you know how they're they're allowing stories to be told and it's it's just i don't know i'm really curious to see like if publishers make actual changes in response mm-hmm. to this research project and the results i know things happen super slowly in publishing. <laughs> so it's probably going to be a while before we see anything really come out of this. But mm-hmm. I hope, I hope that it, it is the reminder that it's meant to be that there's a lot of work ahead for publishing
0: and that something needs to be done. That's perfectly stated. Thank you. <laughs> Shall we talk about something a little bit happier as a response to a disappointing trend. Um, Electric literature, I think this just happened This morning, yeah, July 19th. So, this is brand new news as of the time we're recording this. But Electric Lit, uh, which, if you're not familiar, it's electricliterature.com, and they're a site not dissimilar from what we do at Book Riot, covering books and recommended reading, and they offer all kinds of interesting things and do events. Um, They have created a new series in response essentially to the New York Times series by the book, which asks prominent authors about their literary influences and their favorites. So, it's questions like like, you know, Lauren Groff, what's your go-to classic? Tell us about your childhood reading. What's your favorite book to recommend? What's on your nightstand right now? Um, and if you are familiar with the By the Book column, you have probably noticed that it's very common for those lists to be very white dude heavy. Um, Like, years ago, we were talking about this, I think around the same time that the Vita Count came out, and before I realized it was an impossible task for one woman, I had a spreadsheet, like, (laughs) tracking the race and gender mentions of the books within it. So, like, you know, how many books by women out of the 15 in this column, how many books, you know, out of the 15 in this column were by women, and how many were by people of color? And it's just, um, it's improved, I think, over the years, especially as the New York Times has started asking a more diverse group of authors But this is in response, particularly a few months back, Andy Weir, the author of The Martian, um, had all of his responses to buy the book were books by men, Uh, and that it happens a lot. Um, or it'll happen that there's like one book by a woman mentioned on the list, or all of the books are by white people. And this is a column that people who read the New York Times book coverage take seriously as here's an author who is prestigious or who I admire their work, and they're recommending books to me. And so like, that's this point in the pipeline is if Andy Weir shows up in the New York Times, and all of the books that he's recommending are books by guys, then those books are more likely to be taken seriously and purchased by readers. And so this matters if you care about diversity in books and reading. If you don't care about diversity in books and reading, I'm not sure why you've listened to 270 episodes of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So as a response to this, Electric Lit is um, starting a new series that will run a couple of times a month where they will ask their, they'll ask writers um, to recommend five books that they love that are not by cis men. So by women or non-binary people or trans um, people or anything that's not a cis male um, as a balance to this. I think that's a really interesting response that also feels very 2018 to me. And the very first one is by um, Maria Davana Headley, whose book The Mere Wife just came out. So very, I think this is cool and smart. Um, And it it, like, it takes aim right at a thing that the book world has been talking about as problematic. But it doesn't seem to me that the New York Times is ever going to offer this suggestion to those writers of like, hey, when you come in to do by the book, we recommend that maybe don't just, maybe just don't talk about books by white people.
1: They will never, I could (laughs) never see the New York Times doing that. That would be, like, something Something has changed. The earth has gone off its axis. Um, I kind of want them to do, like, I hope that they invite Gabourey Sidibe to be on because oh. she actually did a buy the book, and it was one of my favorite ones. And mm-hmm. she's a big reader, and she's just hilarious. And I kind of want to, I always want to know what she's reading because she had some good ones. Um but I like that Marita Damana Headleys. I have to read that book, The Mirror Wife. It's like a Beowulf mm-hmm. retelling. Uh, it sounds excellent. So,
0: yeah. Lauren Groff had to buy the book recently when Florida came out, or yes. around the time that Florida was coming out in the last few months, where all of the writers that she mentioned in her column. Were women, and then she sort of remarked on this in one line at the end of it, of like, "And isn't this interesting? How you can, act, how it's actually possible to answer all of these questions with great books by women, and you're not, you know, compromising the quality of your recommendations." Um, and she's quoted in this piece from Electric Lit as well, saying, "We can't escape being born into a society that has contempt for women tattooed on its bones, but we can change ourselves. It is vastly important to read more female authors to see women as worthy of our imagination." and respect, to understand a woman's full humanity, to reclaim authors who have been justly or sorry unjustly forgotten by time because of their gender, to meet the minds of geniuses new to us, to expand the canon, and to work toward the equality of all humans that is promised by the better angels of our society, but which in our actions and silent and insidious biases we so often fail. And I think that if you're feeling any squickiness about like, but why tell writers that this has to be books that aren't by cis men? is summed up right there. This is not about knocking the great books that do exist that are by white men or by cis men, but about lifting up women's voices that have not for a very long time or maybe really ever been shown the same respect and seriousness and given that same platform. So they're just attempt this is an attempt at leveling the playing field.
1: I think this is a really great idea and I I can't wait to see what books are recommended on this. And I think it's, it's kind of fitting. Lauren Groff was also just recently, she's in the news because she – Um, was asked a question about being a woman and a writer and she had a very Mm -hmm. good comeback to it where, you know, basically being asked how you make the time and she basically responded, until a man gets asked this question, a male writer, I'm just not going to go ahead and answer it. So this does seem, it feels like a time where it's like, you know what, we're over it. We're done with like Mm -hmm. just accepting that, you know, one rarely will we see women mentioned and their works mentioned. Um, And, you know, we need an even playing field and we need to be heard. And I think that this is really important. So kudos to them for coming up with this idea. Yeah, I wish that we had had
0: this idea. I know, I wasn't going to say it, but I'm like, darn. I wish that we were running a new series at Book Riot called Five Great Books That Aren't By Men. (laughs) It sounds very (laughs) us.
1: I really wouldn't be surprised if we if we had come up with that. Um, but yeah, it's it's incredible, and I think that that's a great response. I don't think the New York Times is going to change, so why not make something that the world wants that is not mm-hmm. being given to anybody? And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what this comes up. Me too.
0: Are you interested in hearing about some bestsellers? I am. All right. So the headline here this week from Publishers Weekly is that cooking and sci-fi are the hot print segments so far this year. And I was like, really? Yeah. Um, But when I dug into this, um, it's mainly due to two books. The cooking one is Magnolia Table by Joanna Gaines of Fixer Upper Fame on HGTV, which this baffles me because there's, at least if you know Joanna Gaines for the TV show, there's no cooking On this show, but I guess they do have the Magnolia magazine that has recipes in it. I don't know, but it's this is like a giant, beautiful cookbook. Um, I haven't cooked anything out of it. I don't own it, Um, but it has sold six hundred and seventy six thousand copies since it came out in (laughs) April.
1: I would never even heard of her, (laughs) but I'm out of the loop, so.
0: It's bananas. She and her husband have this show on HGTV where they buy, like, the worst house on a nice block, or their clients do, and then they fix it up, and everything is shabby chic.
1: Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those shows are wildly popular, so I can see that.
0: 676,000 copies, though, Sharifa. That's a
1: lot. (laughs) I need to start coming up with, like, cookbooks based on shows that have nothing to do with cooking.
0: Can we get a reality show? Yes.
1: (laughs) Email us, somebody, and then give us a book deal immediately, whether or not we deserve it.
0: (laughs) You're very animated, and you have great wigs, so... That's true. We're we're halfway there. (laughs) We are so, so Magnolia Table is driving all the interest yeah. in cooking this year. If you own Magnolia Table and you are cooking from it, like I love a cookbook and I would love to hear about what makes this one a good one. So you can email us at podcast at bookriot.com and tell me your thoughts. And interestingly, sci fi is being driven by Ready Player One. I guess because the movie came out. Yeah. Um, which has sold 430,000 copies so far this year, which is also just a lot of books.
1: It is a lot of books. I mean, the book, Ready Player One was really buzzy even before the adaptation, and I think Mm -hmm. that just must have, like, driven it way over the top. Um, I am still, for whatever reason, kind of – because there are so many adaptations Mm -hmm. coming out of buzzy books in science fiction and fantasy right now that – I was somewhat surprised, I guess, that Ready Player One specifically would be the book that topped out that list. But um, I don't go a day without hearing about this book that I, P.S., have not read yet. Um, So I'm just, I'm kind of like, okay, well, I guess it's just doing really well. Science fiction is just generally doing well Like, I think maybe because of all the adaptations that are coming out, people are reading a lot more of it, it feels like. So, um, and Mystery Detective is also listed here, as well as another genre um, that is doing well. So, I don't know what's going on. Like, is is there some sort of mood? Is there a climate that is just like, we're all geared up to read some... Definitely dystopias in science fiction, but I don't know about the mystery detective part of it.
0: Maybe it's that there's going to be a lot of tension, but you know that you're going to be, like, you'll have the answer at the end. That's a good,
1: yeah, that's a good guess. That,
0: That, like, the genres that have formula built into them, I think, are always especially appealing when the world is a disaster.
1: That's true. I guess it's not too surprising. I think the cookbook part of it was probably more surprising for me than Mm. the science fiction part of this. Um,
0: Yeah, this is, I wonder, I think this is Joanna Gaines's first cookbook. And I wonder what these sales would do if she continued to come out with them. Like, is the excitement that people have been fans of this show for several years, and this is like the first time they've had a chance to buy a book from her? Or is she... Would she have like a, the long term capability to compete with a new Piattier woman cookbook or a new Ina Garten cookbook? Um, in my, I guess like living in a bubble, hopes when I saw this, I was like, "Oh, is Alison Roman selling a jillion copies of Dining In?" <laughs> <laughs> Which is my favorite cookbook in many, many years. Um, and well, she should come out know. with an Joanna instant- Gaines with an has instant- sold more than James Comey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I know that's like a lot of this is like very shot very surprising, like the instant pot thing. Was like, mm-hmm. I, well, Instant Pot is very, I gave my mother an Instant Pot like last Christmas. So I know that it's a big thing now and everybody has an Instant Pot and it's mm-hmm. contributing obviously to, it says it contributed to the 20% increase in sales for the first six months of 2018. And the, I'm like, okay. <laughs> it's just trends. Instant
0: Pot is keeping publishing alive.
1: You can make your Greek yogurt and stew a giant side of meat in like no time. I guess I understand. I,
0: the You know, the top books of any year are always in some way weird and surprising. And it's very grounding, I think, when you work in the industry the way that we do. And like what's buzzy versus what like civilian readers are into. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what people who are reading a bunch of Book Riot and read a ton of books every year, like the kinds of things that you end up being into when you read a lot are pretty significantly different from a person who reads a couple of books that they pick up in the airport each year or just their book club books once a quarter or something like that and it's to me always a nice like it's it's a hard thing to phrase without sounding snobby but like it is a really good reminder of like what regular readers care about um, versus what it's easy when you're tied up in the industry to think that everybody cares about.
1: Yeah, and I think that it is. there is nothing upsetting about this at all. It is just absolutely fascinating to see. Give the
0: people the cookbooks they want, man. Yes. Give me all the cookbooks. I will take (laughs) them. (laughs) That could be our reality show. We could test cookbooks.
1: Oh, my gosh. I am there. I am there for that.
0: Instead of – why isn't that a thing? Instead of the cook getting their own show where they can shill the cookbook, you need real people cooking from the cookbook. That could
1: be – an ugly scene there might be a lot of cookbooks (laughs) that get like you know what we just gotta scrap them because you obviously didn't test any of these
0: it's the live version of like a pinterest fail
1: oh my goodness
0: (laughs) (laughs) i'm here for it if somehow you are in tv development and you want us to cook for you (laughs) we'll do it sign us up next careers i'm getting tired of books anyway sharifa
1: yeah, you know, I don't. I just don't get them. Why even books?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Why even books? We should change our tagline to that. So like April Fool's yeah. Day one year.
1: We've got to cut uh, that out so it's a surprise. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I think that's our show this week. We had a couple other things on the agenda, but the really meaty one is too meaty to get into mm-hmm. in just a couple of minutes. Um, so thank you for joining me this week. Um, don't forget to check out Book Riot's own recommended podcast. Hear great bookish people talk about a book that they love. You can find it in the Apple Store or and anywhere in your podcatcher of choice to google play go to g.co slash play slash book to get ten dollars off your first audiobook with google play and get a full month of free full access to the great courses plus by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com/bookriot. slash book riot sharifa it's been a pleasure
1: thank you for having me
0: we'll talk to y'all soon